When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, welcome back to the Dungeon of Doom. I, I think this is episode eight of DOD. Ben, uh, we got a special uh, edition this week. Um, joined as always by Ben Raven. I'm Kyle Mikey. We're M Live. Um, we got a, a beat writer roundtable um, of of Lions beat writers. I think this is the largest collection of Lions beat writers outside the beat that I've seen. Um, so yeah, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, I can just whip around the table real quick, introduce y'all. Uh, we got Justin Rogers here, um, the proud owner of Detroit of KyleMikey.com and the outstanding Lions beat writer over at the Detroit News. Uh, Justin obviously was a uh, longtime you know writer at MLive. Um, we worked together for a few years on the Lions beat, and now he's been killing it over at the news. Uh, Justin can be found on Twitter at Justin underscore Rogers. Justin, thank you for joining us. It's a little bit of a prodigal son situation going on here. <laughs> I couldn't build you up too much. Uh, we got Chris. <laughs> we got Chris Burke of the of the Athletic here, a veteran now, veteran Lions beat reporter from the Athletic, co-host of an outstanding Lions podcast called One of These Years over at the Athletic, the second best Detroit Lions podcast in the game. Um, really good stuff over there from from uh, Chris and Nick uh, at the Athletic, and uh, yeah, hit that subscribe button on that. Chris, thank you for joining us. Yeah, got a little, uh, Justin hired me one time back in the day too. So we got uh, like a double prodigal son, prodigal sons situation. I don't know how that works out, but. Uh, <laughs> Wait, Justin. I don't think I know this story. Uh, well, I, I paid Chris a solid $25 a week. <laughs> so uh, I don't know how, how worthy of a mention it is. Still living off of it. That's still what I use for food money. And uh, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. You uh, you also got us threatened with a lawsuit that was far bigger than your, your well, salary. Is that correct? I had no guidance from my editor. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> We're off to a, a great start. Story <laughs> <laughs> time. And uh, lastly, at the at the at the round table here, we got Eric Woodyard, the uh, the rookie on the beat uh, from ESPN. Uh, Eric, uh, welcome to the Lions beat, I guess. And I'm I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun this year, though, man. I, I ain't got no complaints. It was fun. Well, it was a good indoctrination of what this beat is about. I mean, we've had some blips here and there. 2014 was a lot of fun, but man, it's been a lot of pain, <laughs> especially down the stretch. And that that's kind of what uh, you know. That's kind of what transpired this year, right? Yeah, it's fun. Man. I had a good time. I think uh, just y'all, you know, y'all was all cool. And, you know, Dan, everybody was cool. So I, I enjoyed it the first year, honestly. Right on, right on. Well, 
yeah, that leads us well, I think, into maybe the the, the discussion I want to have. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of optimism, I guess, for lack of a better word, building around this team, right? With the way they finished, tough start. They, they, they finished three and three. Jared Goff plays pretty well, I think. Aaron Glenn made a lot of lemonade, right? With you know, just a bear, a threadbare um, defense. Um, optimism is building about where this rebuild's at. You know, going into year two, you got two. Uh, first round picks, one's in the top five, you know, three earlier on picks, a pretty good uh, war chest there in the draft. Um, the feeling is good. And I'm, you know, I'm struck that, you know, I, I think we're used to seeing the nuance play on this conversation locally. Um, uh, it's interesting to see it playing out nationally. Uh, I, you know, we've seen a lot of stuff, a lot of love about the Lions rebuild happening, um, uh, you know, nationally. And, I, you know, there's one story from the ringer uh, that was pretty good that, you know, talked about this being the best rebuild going on in the NFL right now. So I, I guess with this, you know, with the conversation that a lot of people are having right now around the Lions rebuild, I'm curious, fellas, you know, are you buying or selling, you know, this kind of hype, if you will, that's building around what Detroit's doing here heading into year two? Uh, I mean, I can start you. I want me to. Um, I'm buying. It was my first year, but I'm buying it. I mean, I was I really, really. uh I mean, we saw, we was there every day. So a lot of people would come to me like, man, the Lions suck. You know, I'm from Michigan. So, I mean, I've, I've been hearing it all. The Lions suck, the Lions suck. But I'm like, I'm seeing it every day and I'm seeing how hard they playing and, you know, how close these games were. And I saw why the optimism was there. You know what I'm saying? I think we all could probably feel that from being there. So I'm buying it, man, because I see how hard they work. You know, we saw Dan come in every day and even through the struggles, it was like they were the same way every day. And I think sometimes with bad teams, that's not the case. You know, I was... Obviously, I came from the NFL side, I mean, the NBA side. And, you know, I saw teams that was bad, and it was like it was it was horrible going there the next day. And I think, you know, it just those even though they didn't have the talent, you can see like the the foundation being built this year, which was fun. So I'm buying it. I think uh, this offseason is going to be will be huge. They got to get it right in the draft. They got to get it right in free agency the next two years. Uh, you can't waste picks. I think uh, so. I'm, I'm buying optimism. I, I really am, and I'm not just saying that. You know, because I'm, I'm covering a team. I really believe it. Listen, they, they needed to fully commit to a rebuild. And, you know, that, that started when when they finally agreed to part ways with, with Matthew Stafford. It wasn't going to get done here. There was never going to be enough talent around him here to get that done. So, you know, that was the, the first step of, of really fully committing to it. They, they did very well. I think we can all agree in that trade in terms of the, the assets they got back in terms of the three draft picks plus, you know, a, a starting caliber quarterback. Um and then from there, you're, you're looking for energy and development. And they, I think you had both those things, right? The, the energy was, was there from uh, kneecaps on day one, right? Like that, that was what set the, the tone and, and caught the, the national headlines in terms of, uh, you know, what people were talking about. But that was the energy that, that existed um, throughout. We saw it in the draft room when they drafted Sewell and there was the celebration. And we saw it from the, you know, trickle down to the players and, uh, really carry out and then the development right you know they they bring in if it wasn't the youngest roster in the nfl it was it was very very close um and they played so many of those young guys sometimes by necessity but but often by choice and um you know it wasn't universal it's never going to be universal in terms of of clear improvement but so many of those guys particularly the the centerpieces the the amonras the panay Sewells, got better and and are the 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 foundation of that optimism going forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm tentatively buying. You know, I think there's there's some warts that uh, every every regime has to kind of overcome. It's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. There are going to be positives and negatives, and it's about being more positive than negative. And 
there's more positives right now, and, and they really need to kind of keep that momentum going with, with the upcoming offseason, both free agency and the draft. I think part of the reason we're buying is what Eric mentioned there. And like, he wasn't there for the Patricia era, but the difference in how it felt this year on a day-to-day basis was insane. I mean, and it, it was a lot of that came from Campbell, but I think like, like Eric mentioned, the energy was there um, from everyone, from the players, from the coaching staff. And, and so I think that that was, I mean, we felt that for sure. And I think you saw that on the field. I I'm buying too. I'm we're what a year. I think this is like exactly a year from when Campbell's introductory press conference was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I sort of cautiously buying, I, I think that this is, uh, going to be really interesting to see what, what Brad Holmes can do with this next phase, because year one was all about cleaning up the mess and getting some of those contracts off the books, moving Stafford, getting the young guys in. And now with some money to play with, the expectations are going to be higher for sure, at least locally going into year two. Can you kind of keep that snowball rolling and and figure out how to take the next step? Because it, they still know it's a multi-year rebuild and we still know it's a multi-year rebuild, but people saw that finish and they see the Bears and Vikings firing your co- their coaches and nine and seven teams get nine and eight teams get into the playoffs. And I think people are starting to dream a little bit about what this could be next year. But, and uh, I don't know, I, like that's that's the next phase, I think. I, I think you bring up a great point, Chris, which is it's not just about what's happening with you. It's about what's happening to the people around you. And Chicago has already fired its coach and GM. Uh, Minnesota has already fired its coach and GM. Who knows what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers? Um, there's an opening there. And I don't think the Lions are anywhere close to being a real contender. But when you look at their division and you look at their schedule with, I think, six or seven, I think seven uh, games against first-year head coaches next year, that doesn't include Carolina, which was a mess this year and has problems. Um, I mean, there's an opening there to be competitive next year and to make a playoff push and to be respectable. And we saw a team, I think, down the stretch this year that really rallied around Dan Dan Campbell. Uh, To to your point, Chris, where it didn't feel like – culture-wise, like it did under Patricia, right? And the best comparison I can think of, I've, I've put a lot of thought into it, is uh, 2015, when they started one in seven, uh, the Lions did under Jim Caldwell. And like the, the locker room that year didn't turn on on Caldwell like you do, like, like you see sometimes around the league when that, that kind of stuff happens. And um, and sure enough, the, this team as well, just like that one in 15, you know, it, it rallied around a head coach. I, I, I think that it builds character in a way that I don't think you otherwise would have, if you were like signing veterans off the street to go like six and whatever, uh, six and nine or something, you know, um, I, I think there was a lot of good work done in the rebuild this year. And a lot of rookies that played a lot of young players that played so much better by year's end than they did at the start of the year, which I think you're going to see the payoff then um, going forward. Um, ben, to, to bring you into the conversation, I'm, I'm curious, you know, with regard to, to Dan Campbell, the Dan Campbell experience, which has to be experienced, I feel like sometimes just to, to be known, but um, what, what was your takeaway on, on Dan this year? And I don't know, on a football level or even on a personal level, just dealing with the guy every day. I mean, just to hear guys like Chris, J- Justin and Eric say that it felt completely different than the Patricia years makes me feel good because every day felt like like a rebirth on the job. It felt like year one again with just like this upbeat, positive, you know, just no BS and straightforward, transparent coach. You know, it just like, it was like a completely new experience. The guy made our jobs easier than they should have been. Just the way he treated us with respect and kind of straightforward nature. And just, uh, 
yeah, like you guys said, I mean, just that locker room really rallied around him because it's like that's some of the worst football we had seen in a long time through the first eight or nine weeks. And it was just positive, positive. This is a guy, this is the guy you never, you never questioned a buy-in. You never questioned anything like that. And then on the field, the biggest takeaway is like you said, the improvement from some of those rookies, the improvement from some of those cornerstone rookies and the improvement in Dan Campbell as a play caller. I mean, that was a, that was a big task to take on mid season and to improve the way he did with the pieces that he had on the field is just really impressive. I mean, on the field, off the field, I'm buying just like the rest of these guys on this panel here, you know, it was a positive experience. I think both ways. I wanted to um, go back to, to Kyle's point about the, the, the similarities to the season um, where, where they fought back from, from the one in seven start. And, you know, I, I think personality wise, you couldn't find more of a stark contrast than, Dan Campbell and, and Jim Caldwell, but the overlap in in their character is the way they treat people, right? And and the way they respect their players as as human beings and and kind of that aura. And I think that's easy to continue to fight for a guy that that treats you well like that. And I think that's maybe why there there was you know this this continued buy in with with both programs is just the 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 human element of the way they they treat individuals. And in terms of, you know, the opening within the division, um, I, I think you're right. Like, right, you see the the sinking ships elsewhere or, the you know, the pending rebuilds, however you want to look at it. But the, the reality is, like, the Lions can't get aggressive, overly aggressive. They can't jump the gun on their process, right? They've got to stick with what's working. They've got to stick to building through the draft and the commitment. They can't go and suddenly uh, spend crazy for – you know, free agents to, to try to get into the playoffs suddenly because that's that's not sustained success, right? That's a short-term burst, a, a solution that maybe get fans excited for one year, but they're trying to build this thing for the long haul. So they should continue to build with young talent, whether that's free agency or the draft, and and try to build something sustainable because that's that's always been the goal here is to, to be in that Green Bay, in that Pittsburgh, in that New England conversation. I know it just seems like such a pipe dream, but this is the foundation you've laid. Stick to that plan, continue to build toward that. I guess maybe to that point, Justin, you know, I, you look around at the sustained winners uh, around the league, they always hinge on on great quarterback play. And Jared Goff played well down the stretch, very well, uh, especially considering, you know, where the roster is. But I, I couldn't help watching those games last weekend and looking what Josh Allen did and Patrick Mahomes and all these guys that are dynamic quarterbacks carrying their teams and think about just where Jared Goff doesn't measure up, you know, and he played very well. I'm not taking anything away from the guy and, and, and consider what he had around him and the, the pressure he faced along the way and the struggles in the first half of the season. And of course the injuries too, uh, he played far better than you could have imagined. I, I just don't look at him playing football and think this is the guy who's going to center a consistent winner. Eric, Chris, what, what do you guys think of Jared Goff and the dilemma the Lions have on their hands there as they proceed forward? Yeah, I agree, man. Um, I agree with you. They definitely, I think this year you stick with him. I mean, you see what he can do. I mean, I, I know they're not, you know, they, they've told us consistently over and over, he's not a bridge quarterback. He's not a bridge quarterback, but I mean, just in my opinion, I mean, it's probably it probably is the case. He's he's, he's the bridge guy to whoever the next guy is in, in the franchise. I think, uh, you know, I think he will have a better season next year. I, I think so, just because obviously coming from LA, coming to a new situation with the pieces he had around him. I mean, like you said, he did getting three wins and a tie. I mean, that's that's is, is actually decent in this situation. You know, what I mean, just based off what he had to work with. But yeah, I think uh, you give him another, you, you run it back with him one more year, maybe get a quarterback. You know, and with that second first round pick. 
And uh, I mean, I know it's not a great quarterback class in a draft, but I, I think you should probably get a quarterback, bring them along. I mean, because you can't realistically boil and blah, and blah that's not the answer as well. So you got to have somebody who can come in and, and bring them along right. And I think you just run it back with Jared. You run it back with him one more year, give him another chance, and I mean, see how it goes. The word that jumps out for me that you said, Kyle, is dynamic quarterbacks, you know, and I, I, I think Jared Goff was a – great fit for what the lions are in right now. You know, he, that was a really difficult situation for him. His team that he helped take to a super bowl said, you're not good enough anymore. We don't want you anymore. Dumped him on this team that we knew was going to be bad. And, you know, he could have, he did not have to handle it the way that he handled it. And I think he was a really stabilizing force in that locker room and for that offense. And you got to give him credit for how he played down the stretch. And I think you can, see him playing fairly well next year. If they add another receiver and the old line's healthy, like you could win some games for sure. But to win in this league consistently, you have to have a dynamic quarterback. And that doesn't mean he has to be a dual threat guy. It has to be Patrick Mahomes, but you either have to have some of that or have to be, you know, elite in the pocket like Brady and to Stafford, I guess, if you want to make that argument to some extent, um, you need to have some of those traits that really jump off the page and golf sort of okay at a lot of things. And there's not really one thing that you'd say, that's what we can lean into and win with when we have the pieces here. And so that's, you know, it feels like there's kind of a ceiling um, to, to where he can take you, which I, I agree with Eric. I mean, I think you can go at least another year, maybe two years, even as you're still building this out and, and be comfortable with what he's going to give you. But if you're thinking we're going to make a run, I mean, it's hard to see you going on the road in January or whatever and, and winning a playoff game when every little thing has to be perfect around your quarterback. I mean, that's exactly why L.A. traded him, right? And I, I think I, you, know, you can go back and dozen interviews or mailbags or whatever. Like I've, I've always said Matthew Stafford could win a Super Bowl if everything around him was right and look at the Rams have put a, a pro bowl team around him. And, and so the Rams have this, this chance to do that with Matthew Stafford, like look at it costs Jared Goff and two thir first rounders and a third rounder to get you Matthew Stafford. The Rams clearly feel he's a tier below Matthew Stafford. I think we collectively agree that he's a tier below Matthew Stafford. So if you need everything around Matthew Stafford to be right to win a Super Bowl, Jared, Jared Goff's probably not that guy. And, you know, going back to that dynamic point, right? Like it, the position's just evolving and you almost, most of the guys coming in have that mobility aspect to them, right? They're that dual threat and that just doesn't exist in, in Goff's game. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to see the Lions, whether it's this year, 2023, add uh, a quarterback that, that also has the ability to, to make some, some plays with his legs. I think, uh, you know, Jared Goff has proved to be you know, what the Lions expected him to be when they made that trade, the stabilizing veteran force for the offense as they went through some really sweeping change on the, on the roster. It just took him longer maybe to get there than we were expecting. He was, you know, there were some struggles in camp that we saw with the vertical stuff, the turnovers, you know, some of the stuff that went back to LA, which made it more concerning. And that was some of the stuff that we saw with the Anthony led offense in the first two months of the year. But then I guess in the second half, you know, he, he played beyond what I was expecting, at least, especially considering the pieces that were around him, that that position is so contingent on the people that are around you. And he didn't have much. And um, down the stretch, he had almost, almost nothing at all. And he was still playing good football, took it to the, the Cardinals, you know, 
beat a Packers team that had its starters out there for half, you know, a half of that game. Um, you know, it, I guess the conversation that Ben and I have been having a little bit um, here on the podcast and everything is, you know, you get certain players to help you in a, in a rebuild, right? And they have a certain class of player right now, like a Jared Goff or like an Alex Anzalone at, at linebacker who help you with leadership and they help stabilize things and, and set the ground floor of a rebuild. But at some point, when you become serious about competing again, you do, you need a different class of player. And that's true with Anzalone at linebacker. Like he was fine this year and the coaches loved him. And I know, I understand why, because he helped them in so many ways on the field and off throughout camp and practice and installing the scheme, you know, going it just had his familiarity with Glenn being that conduit between, between Glenn and um, you know, the, the defense was invaluable. Uh, golf was in many ways in the same regard for the offense and um, got to that place that they needed him to be in, at least in the second half. Um, you know, it, but at some point when, you, when this rebuild matures and, and you want to compete and, and beat teams and make the playoffs and make a run, I just, you can't look at the playoffs right now and what Tom Brady and Matthew Stafford and some of these guys are doing around the NFC or on, especially on the other side with Mahomes and, and Allen and so forth and think Jared Goff can go out there against these guys and beat them and beat them with regularity. Like that's just not a thing that I see. And that, that's, that'll always be a shortcoming until the Lions obviously draft a guy. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. It's just like, and the thing that I kept going back to is these last five games, like these standout five weeks for Goff, that felt like his ceiling. And I, I'll let you get into it, Chris, because I've hit over, I've hit it on the head over and over again. You know, I mean, the biggest thing you impressed me with is that the fact that I was, feeling more optimistic about Jared Goff at the end of the year than I was going in. And I didn't expect that in a hundred years to come out of this season, feeling that way and just cut down on the turnovers. He was a good, good soldier. That's a hard word for me for some reason, good leader. He was the right guy for that locker room without question. But uh, yeah, just uh, sorry, Chris, to cut you off there. I just, I, I just think that was his ceiling down the stretch. Hey man, it's your podcast. Hey, you can cut me off whenever you want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's I think his contract, Chris. <laughs> Uh, I, but those, those last that last stretch, it, it's hard to kind of shake it totally because I think with Goff, they told us all along, like we think that you know he can be a good quarterback. We think we can win with him. That to this idea that maybe there's more in there than what we saw uh, last year with the Rams. And I think if you went back a couple years in LA, there was there were some things that he hadn't been doing, and uh, whether that was confidence or the scheme or whatever. And so if you were going to stick with him for another year or two you had to see something that gave you that glimmer of hope that maybe he could find it again or find something beyond what he had been and I think that those last few starts with Campbell calling plays and with St. Brown emerging I mean Campbell's thing from day one was we're we're not going to worry about scheme so much we're going to find our mismatches we're going to put our guys in advantageous situations and so if they have some ways to do that with golf where they feel comfortable with some of the stuff he can do and they take out the things that he can't do. And, you know, you're getting the ball to your playmakers. I think they, he can be productive and I think he can play like he did down the stretch. But again, that's like, <laughs> you have to call a game perfectly to keep him out of those tough spots and you can't be losing, you know, in the third and fourth quarter. So I don't know, like I said, I think that there certainly is enough there for him to be a starter for this team right now. But I am with, the rest of you that eventually you've got to figure something out but you also can't like justin said earlier you can't go this can't be desperation this can't be well golf's not going to be our guy in 2023 2024 so we got to figure this out immediately because that's when you get in trouble too so uh, that's uh sort of the the tricky part of this i guess as they move into the draft and free agency and everything 
the uh, the good news is they have not only two picks in the first round this year, but two first first round picks the year after that, and that gives them capital to get the guy they want. Or if they are more competitive than we think, you know, this season, they can package those picks, you know, for a trade up next year. I, you know, I, I think there is there are some some ways they can go about this, even if they don't get their guy this year, which might be the case looking at the quarterback class and what's you know on offer this year. Um, more immediately, guys, you know, this this coming into this year, one of the big and to Chris's point, one of the big um, you know concerns is what to do with the offensive offensive coordinator position, which I don't think can be settled until Campbell figures out whether he wants to call plays which by all accounts has not been settled yet. And I'm just curious where you guys are at when it comes to whether he should. Like, like what did you see from Dan Campbell, the play caller? And, and do you think, like, that kind of thing is sustainable? Uh, I, you know, for me, it, it surprised me, actually, how well he – how well that position suited him, given everything else he was dealing with as a first-time head coach. Being a first-time coordinator is difficult. He was basically taking on a lot of those duties while he was also a first-time head coach, um, and the offense played pretty well down the stretch, which, I mean, it just surprised me, like, how well and how quickly that, that position suited him. But but is that a sustainable thing, I guess, is my question. Is that the direction the offense should go going forward? What, what are you guys' thoughts when it comes to the play calling? It's a tricky one right there. I'll tell you what, it was entertaining. Sometimes it felt like he was out there playing Madden. Some <laughs> of those trick plays, and it was definitely entertaining once he got in his groove and got in his bag and started figuring out, you know, just kind of knowing I don't have the weapons, so we got to do everything we can to kind of, you know, just kind of capitalize on what we have. That was fun, but like you say, the sustainability of it, I'm not sure, man. And um, that's going to be a decision. I, I still don't think that he's decided yet. So I think uh, nobody's going to want to come in and be an offensive coordinator, not not calling the plays. I mean, that, that's probably not going to be the case. So I think it's really going to be what he decides, what he wants to do. Uh, like you said, I think he did pretty well. You know, they finished strong in the season, but I don't know if it's sustainable or not. But I mean, we'll we'll see. Really feels like um, you know we're trending to this direction where Campbell's going to continue in the play calling. Uh, ben Johnson, who, you know, I think had a, a really obvious hand in, in kind of the game planning and, and play design, play tweaking, if you will, getting promoted to, to offensive coordinator and, and recognizing that and giving him, I guess, a, a bigger sense or a bigger sense of responsibility within those spheres of the offense. And and I think we're going to continue in seeing this. And look, at I was as skeptical as anyone with, with Campbell taking over, you know, a guy that's never done it before, but... I, I do have this appreciation for the tight end position and, and the depth of knowledge required to play that position. Uh, you really need to know all elements of the offense. I think Campbell, even though sometimes he presents himself in that, that meathead sense that, you know, endears him to the, uh, you know, the, the blogs of the world um, that, he he is very football X's and O's savvy, right? And and to have a sounding board like Ben Johnson and and the openness to let the staff fully contribute into the the game planning aspect of it and the the play design aspect of it, it it worked early. And look, at it, there, there's going to be more film on him. There's going to be uh, probably less of a reliance on trick plays as they go on. And I I don't know how long they're going to continue on in this this fourth down aggression that has been awesome to cover from a, a writer perspective, but uh, I, I think Campbell can, can actually do this successfully. Like I, I kind of believe that it's, it's possible. And um, I, I don't know uh, what the alternative is. Cause I think he's going to have a tough time luring somebody here because of the way he took away play calling from Lynn. I, th I think that's a, a detriment in terms of selling it to, to someone else coming in, unless he's 
um, you know, got a pre-existing relationship with him, you know, a guy like maybe Joe Brady, just to throw out a name there that that's connected to, to Campbell through the Saints days. But um, I, I really, I really feel like this is trending towards Campbell continuing in this role uh, for 2022, at least. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Justin. That's the tea leaves that I read, you know, and, and who knows where it goes. And I don't, I mean, last time we talked to him was last week. And at that point, you know, it didn't, I don't, I, I got the impression he didn't even know, you know, he's going to take some time to digest this season um, and, and proceed. I, 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 you know, it wasn't what he, it wasn't his original plan, right. When he uh, took this thing on. So it leads me to believe that's not what he wants to do. I, I think he would prefer as a, you know, as a guy who makes his hay as a, you know, charismatic players coach who, you know, connects well with guys and everything. He wants to have his hands uh, in all the jars, right? And he wants to have some command of the defense and the special teams. And that stuff subsides a little bit when you take such control of the offense. you got to be in all those meetings and um, on that side of the ball in practice and working with the quarterbacks all the time. So you're on the same page and all that kind of stuff. So I understand his reticence to take on the role, but there's also no doubt that he like was better suited to the job than I, that than that any of us really expected. It's just not, you know, it was, um, you know, it was, it was uh, the biggest surprise to me that, that I was asked, I just did the podcast last week or week, week or two ago with the pride of Detroit guys, uh, friends of ours. And they had asked me what was the biggest like thing that I learned about Campbell, you know, this year. And like, honestly, like some of the things like the strengths and, and weaknesses that we saw develop over time, I think were by the book. Um, some of the stuff that we had heard and expected from, Campbell and about Campbell going into the season maybe the biggest thing that I wasn't expecting was was his like how well he was suited to calling offensive plays I don't like with all the talk about kneecaps and like his charisma and his and how well he connects with, with, with players and him being a former player who connects with players and building out the staff of former players who connected with players like, like we focused a lot on that kind of stuff and I don't think we got a good feel for him as X's and O's and I think he has a way better command like I, I like I think this guy went like is way more like schematic driven than we realize. Um, and I don't know if you can come to a different conclusion just based on um, the sudden and rapid you know, improvement of the offense under his watch, even with, you know, the, the personnel in complete disarray. One thing I learned about him too this year, man, just, just how competitive he is. I mean, we saw him, the guy literally cried, you know, after a loss. I mean, like that's, we don't see guys having that passion to, to win. I mean, that really care, especially coming into a situation like Detroit, where nobody really expected him to, to to do much this year, to display that passion and have it, and it's not fake. You know, this guy came out, he was really trying to win, really trying to get it. And you saw how bad the players played for him, like Amara St. Brown and all those guys. When they got that first win in Minnesota, I mean, when they beat Minnesota the first win, like you see them go directly to him. That just shows, like, I think that's what I learned, just like how competitive he is. Like you said, I, I heard all, read all the stories and saw the, the press conferences and all that before I actually started on the job. And, um, he changed my perspective of just how, how badly he wanted to win. You can't make that stuff up. This was sort of the word, I guess, that I think we all had gotten about Campbell after they hired him, though, because it was a, you know, he played in the area he played in at tight end. Like he said he comes across sort of like a meathead sometimes. He was in the Parcells uh, system as a player. Like you were thinking that this is going to be, the, the danger is maybe that this is too, like, throwback old school that they're just gonna line up with eye formation and and try to run down your throat all game and and they did do some of that certainly and we know how much he loves Jason Cabinda but um I think the thing that the Lions told us when they hired him and that people who knew Campbell told everyone who would listen as that move was being made is that 
there was a, a lot more there than people were giving him credit for that he was going to uh, like I, I said a few minutes ago like he was going to be able to sort of tweak those things that that he knew from his playing days and from being under Parcells and Sean Payton and and kind of adapt them to where the game is going and what he had on his roster and so that's really what stood out um you know like some of the stuff like St. Brown developing I think came from uh, him developing more of a rapport with golf and, and just emerging as a rookie. Like he takes time to settle in as a rookie, but a lot of that was drawn up down the stretch and, and they found a, a way to take advantage of what they had there. Like you said, and um, you know, the run game too kept working and Brock Wright somehow was catching touchdown passes, like all these things that uh, I think probably started in the, meeting rooms on Tuesday and Wednesday carried over to Sunday. And so that's a credit to Campbell, but the, the reason that I, I don't really know what he's going to do either is what you said, Kyle, is I think he almost set this up like a college coaching staff, you know, like he was going to be the guy who just sort of oversaw it all. He was the CEO, but he was going to let Aaron Glenn run the defense and he was going to let Lynn and Deuce run the offense. And he would just kind of be there to make sure everything stayed on track if he takes over play calling, if he's your coordinator, you know, quote unquote, what does that do to the dynamic of everything else? And I imagine that's part of why he hasn't figured it out or at least hadn't the last time we talked to him. But I think he has so much faith in those coaches he's put in place and uh, particularly Glenn, right? I mean, that's a guy that he's been with for, for years. And um, I think he knows that even if he, if he ultimately decides to be in the play caller role, he knows Glenn's going to handle business and, and take care of it the way he'd want on defense. And um, you may, maybe he didn't have that rapport with, with FIP. Um, they work together in Miami, correct? That's that, that uh, rings a bell, but um, you know, not, not the same level of rapport, but the, the job that FIP did with special teams this year throughout the season probably breeds that, that same confidence. Yeah. Which I, I guess this leads me to my original question, which is the uncertainty with the leadership on offense. Um, you know, I, it was a clearly a problem that like Lynn was not clicking with golf. I think more than anything, the, the, the production and results speak for themselves. I, I guess as we look forward, um, you know, it, it just wouldn't surprise me to see in the end uh, for Campbell to opt for inertia, basically with the things that were working down the stretch, he clearly has a touch and a taste and a, um, and everything for, for, for play calling. Um, and I, you have Deuce Staley already on staff, a guy who knows the running game, uh, was a running back, uh, has obviously the trust of Dan Campbell was the assistant head coach last year, has an outsized you know role already as, a, as an assistant. Uh, you have Ben Johnson already, who is the de facto passing game coordinator coordinator down the stretch. And for as much credit as we give Dan Campbell, and rightfully so, like Ben Johnson had a hand in a lot of that stuff as well. Uh, the design of the, the plays. And we heard it from so many sources, players and coaches and all over the place about the little tweaks he was doing to plays that are already in the playbook, the new stuff, new stuff he put in there. And I don't think it's a huge mistake that we saw a huge coincidence that we saw more downfield passing, you know, after the change of play caller, um, you know, the, with Ben Johnson coming into more of a, a the, the design of the plays and the, the trick plays down the stretch and um, you know, we'll see what happens, but um, you know, the momentum is there and I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, Cam Campbell to, to opt for it. I, I guess just to spin this conversation forward a little bit, guys, um, we talked a lot about the coaching staff, um, you know, as far as the players, you know, we saw a lot of development across the board. And I think that was right. The chief objective 
of this season more than anything, more than wins and losses and whatever else. Uh, nobody, I think, amplifies that more than Amon Ross St. Brown. Um, I guess I'm curious, like his numbers are outrageous down the stretch, setting all kinds of records, including the Lions rookie receiving record, had more catches in the last month than anyone else in the game. So a lot of that obviously is a product of uh, the lack of talent around him at that point um, with the injuries and stuff. And um, I, I guess I'm just curious what you would expect from St. Brown in year two and, you know, and going forward, like, like, like when you look at St. Brown, like what's like, what can he be like? What's the, What's the ceiling? Like, I, don't, I don't think the ceiling is like, you know, Calvin Johnson, Odell Beckham, whatever, which is the kind of production that he had as a rookie. So like, what, like, how do you see him, I guess, going forward? Like, what can he be for this rebuild going forward? I don't, I don't want to put him in Debo Samuel territory, but I think he did flash some versatile potential down the stretch. That could have him be your slot guy. That could get him involved in the rushing attack. He could be a decoy to set up those fake plays in the passing attack. I mean, you saw that stuff. I mean, he handled five, six straight games with double digit targets. I mean, it's hard to expect him to do that. The guy's what six foot 195 pounds. I mean, he is not a vertical outside receiver, except he was producing like one of the <laughs> like best receivers in football down the stretch. I mean, I think if you get this team a vertical option on the outside, there's no reason why St. Brown can't continue to handle that eight to 10 targets a game out of the slot, out of the backfield, lined up outside, lined up in line. I mean, he can do a little bit of everything. I mean, the fact that he wants to get dirty and block and hit people on the chin and talk some trash when he's not even running routes. I mean, this guy will do everything. He just, when I think of Dan Campbell guys, I think of Panay Sewell and Amon Ross St. Brown, and there's just so much that I can see him doing in this offense. And I think that's just one of the things that sticks out the most to me about the Campbell Ben Johnson offense down the stretch. It's just, finding ways to get those key matchups. You actually saw it come to life down the stretch, finding ways to get St. Brown the ball, who was their best remaining piece on the field at time. And I just think he's not going to be your number one receiver, but he can be a very good number two. He can be a very, very good Pro Bowl level slot guy if he continues to grow the way he did down the stretch. I think one of the things I observed about him from day one, I mean, we look back now that we can reflect on the season. The guy came in with a toughness from day one. The first day they put on pass, you know, he was out there hitting. I think that set the tone for, for me with him. And then he come out, he catching 202 passes every day on a judge machine. You don't see that every day with the consistency with a guy like that. So not to really put a, I don't really want to put a, a compare him to anybody or do anything like that. I think he just, a, he just a baller, man. I think he going to be, he going he gonna to leave his mark in Detroit as long as he's here. The guy's kind of been bred for the situation. And you saw him, you know, I mean, we, we, we talked, we covered his dad all year talking about, you know, being, you know, what he's growing up with, having older brothers, and you see that. I mean, I, I play sports, so you see the younger brother always be the one that be the toughness because he's been getting beat up his whole life. Now nah, he's ready to do some beating up. So I think for him, it was almost like he was bred for the moment, and I always admired just how confident he was. I mean, the guy, he was a rookie, but just the way he even handled media and the way he he, he was poised, he's very poised throughout the year. So, I mean, we saw it. I, I mean, that production is absurd to keep that up, but I think uh, – I think he's going to work his tail off this offseason. I know he will. I know he's going to be – he's already back home. Uh, probably going to start working soon again. And, yeah, that guy, I mean, he, he definitely made his mark from day one. I think that's what probably stood out the most with watching him this year. And it was fun to see him that second half of the year, though. It definitely was. I invested a lot of time watching St. Brown's college tape during the offseason, and I, I didn't come away particularly impressed. Like, I, I saw some positives, but I, you know, there's there's no way that I, I would admit that I saw – the way he finished the season coming and uh, the comp I was, I was using and I, I, I really liked was, was late career Anquan Bolden. I thought he was going to be kind of this, 
a guy that might catch 60 passes, 800 yards, maybe six to eight touchdowns and be a really good, you know, solid number three NFL receiver at his, at his peak. And he might've had those stats in the last five games for all I know. It, it, that's the way it felt. And, you know, I, I'm not afraid to, to throw out comps still. And, you know, maybe, maybe we're looking at peak Anquan Bolden or, you know, another one I really like that, um, you know, his teammate throughout is, is Josh Woods, you know, another USC guy, you know, that's a guy that, you know, his peak so far has been about 1200 yards, but he does some of that stuff running out of the backfield. He's not a big vertical threat. I think he's got five or six 40 plus yard plays in his entire career, but just a really solid productive guy. That's, that's tough. Uh, ben said six foot one ninety five. I think that's exactly what Robert Woods is listed. I mean, there's, there's a lot of easy comps there. Uh, and, and if that's what you end up getting out of a fourth round pick, I mean, what an, what an absolute, home run uh, to, to start Brad Holmes's tenure. You know, I think one of Brad Holmes's most memorable quotes, probably most quotable quotes from his like post draft press conference was about St. Brown when he said, you know, I, I think you, I, I forget what the question was even, but he was, he said, you know, you guys will get him off my ass about getting a receiver. And it's kind of funny to see like where everything has proceeded with St. Brown because I mean, I, I like, obviously he developed into a really good player, but I think he produced at a level, even the lines weren't anticipating. And again, I think, I think a part of that was a function of the, the lat, you know, the, just the talent drain and the attrition that occurred this year. And I, I don't think all of that is necessarily replicable going forward, but the NFL is all about seizing opportunities. And that's what St. Brown did. And he stepped into a void that was there and he was capable. He won his one-on-one, he, he won his one-on-one matchups. Like he won his two-on-one matchups. Like he was productive even when game plans were skewing toward him down the stretch. I mean, Green Bay knew where the ball was going and St. Brown still had a monster game. Like there, like perhaps his like level production won't uh, be on this pace next year, but like he's proven that he can like, that he can make plays and uh, he's developed into something that, that no one knew he could be perhaps even the lions. Uh, and that there's a lot to be said for that. Obviously there's a lot of success with the, with the Sewell pick as well. And I think that's been beaten to death. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm more interested in having a conversation with the defense where the lions also invested in, in, in Anzarike um, in the second round on the defensive line and Derek Barnes uh, in the, what was it? The fourth round. A lot of buzz around that guy back in camp. Um, you know, the, I, it was a really good draft class. You got really, really good contributions, plus contributions from Jerry Jacobs and AJ Parker and undrafted free agency. No class is perfect. I think this is where, you know, in the, the heart of the defense is kind of where um, Brad Holmes's first class measures short. And I'm curious what you guys' thoughts on Anzarike and Barnes and what's going on uh, with the future of the interior of the defense. I think we, uh, you know, we're out there for rookie camp and everything, OTAs, training camp, and Barnes was not participating in a lot of those things early on. You know, he was out there, he was involved, he was uh, just sort of always around Chris Spielman. It seemed like he was trying to learn all the time, but he wasn't on the field a whole lot. And then Anzarike had some similar stuff pop up where he missed, you know, time in August and then time in September. And I think, was it Todd Wash who said, like, the one thing we need to do this off season is just get his body right. Like we need him in shape when he comes back. And so, I, I mean, to me, that was the biggest thing for those two guys is you, you were drafting guys that were high upside and you saw the physical potential for sure in both of them. And it flashed at times during the season, but they were, they were raw. I mean, there was a reason you got Barnes where you did and owns I don't think they had any expectations that he was going to step in and, you know, play 50 snaps and be a dominant guy. They knew that they had a lot of work to do there. So I think that 
you know, not to give him a pass on this first year, but I, I think you still like the things you liked about them, you know, back in April. Uh, and you just need it to come along a little bit faster. But I, I also really think Aline McNeil had a good year all overall with what they put on his plate. And you saw his role expand as the year went on too. They gave him some more shots and uh, as a bit of a pass rusher. And I think he's going to be, you know, the type of guy that you can put in there and not worry about for like seven or eight years if he stays healthy. That That's the type of you know, player he seems like he could be. So, I, I mean, I still think you feel pretty good coming out of this year about that that defensive talent in the draft class, but maybe not quite as high as you wish you would have been. Uh, it just, you know, just the way it happened because of the time those guys missed a, 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 in a lot of ways. Maybe moving on to the perimeter of the defense where, you know, I think even Brad Holmes acknowledged after the season, um, you know, that that's where they're going to be targeting, that there's some shortcomings there. Uh, obviously injuries defensively affected that um, with Okuda going down in week one, Melifanu was step, stepping up in week two, but Melifanu going down in week two, like it was just one domino after another at that position. They found something in Jerry Jacobs, you know, another guy who, um, who came out of really nowhere, even to make the team, I was kind of expecting him to be more of a special teams guy. And then it's like by, you know, week, I don't know, six, seven, eight, somewhere in that range. He's like, damn, like he's like, you know, a, a, a playing really well out there. And Dan Campbell called him a pit bull. I don't think there's any better descriptor for that guy. The way he plays football, he's, it's just such a, listen, like some corners are athletic, some are physical, some are in the middle. Like Jerry Jacobs is a physical ass cornerback. And it's going to be really interesting to see what that guy develops into. Like, I, I don't really have a comp for him in the way he plays. And it'll be really interesting to see what he becomes, you know, as he becomes more polished and stuff. But with him in the fold, guys, and Melifanu just drafted in the third round, the first return on, on the Matthew Stafford trade um you got jeff okuda coming off the achilles you got or warrior who just picked off six passes and was one of the best uh, you know defensive players in the first year for this regime clearly was a good you know good fit for this regime um there are some questions at, at cornerback and what happens there and I'm, I'm i'm curious your thoughts on the secondary um maybe you know if you have any thoughts on, on okuda in particular just you know with, you know considering where he was drafted obviously there's a lot of interest there and there's a lot already invested in his where he's at and where he's going but um, thoughts there, guys, in the, in the secondary. You like the uh, the Pitbull nickname better than Crazy Jerry? I do because when I think of a Pitbull, like I live with a pit. And by the way, we're doing this virtually, but Justin's about 15 feet away from me. <laughs> uh, I live with a pit. And like I watch Jerry Jacobs play and it's like, oh, yeah, that's Ozzy. <laughs> like like chasing after his toy or whatever. Like it's he's just so aggressive. It's I've never really seen like have you guys I've, I've never really seen a guy play like cornerback quite like he does i think a quandary digs i mean obviously a little bit different playing the nickel and and safety but just that that underdog aggressive mentality all the time um is is kind of similar stylistically to you know that that's the comp that i kind of make in my head but it it's interesting the the perimeter conversation i kind of wish we we had followed up I, i know how chaotic that that day can be um just kind of the the rapid fire nature of trying to get in everything he possibly can in half an hour with the GM but um you know what what does perimeter mean for for Holmes does it include your edge rushers does it include your outside linebackers that play more on the I, I guess on the the edge of the 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 box in terms of like the weak side defender like is is it the safeties I I, I just I don't know because if if it's just limited to like that cornerback talk I 
I, I guess I have a different opinion of him of where their their weaknesses are in the defense. I I kind of like where that young secondary is going on the the outside. It's it's that middle of defense that that I think is the the cause for concern going forward, and that extends to the defensive tackles. You know, and I, I know he said the defensive line's a a source that he thinks of depth, and and maybe that's potential, but they're not getting the pass rush pressure still. It's it's the linebackers, you know, whether that's Alex or, or Derek or even Jalen Ruiz Maven, like there's there's not a a, a bona fide start at that spot. And then safety is a, a just a massive, massive question mark going into the season. I think we're all looking at what they're gonna do with Tracy Walker, but even if they resign Walker, like I feel like there's there's a lot of potential to 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 upgrade at that spot, whether that's via free agency and and, and taking the home run swing for um, you know, I think the, the guy that's easy to draw a line here too, in, in Marcus Williams, with with the connection to Glenn, and going back to what I said earlier about sticking with the rebuild, that that's that's a 25 year old playmaker at safety that could be a game changer, or you know, fill in that spot with one of those first three picks in the draft. Like I, I feel like the heart of the defense is so much more of a pressing need than than what they got going on in the perimeter, and and maybe that's just me assuming Akuda is going to come back fine and. Uh, be some semblance of the player they, they thought he would be, but uh, that that's just kind of where my head is at right now. I think it's especially true with regard to the linebackers, right? Like like when I look at that defense, like linebackers, where I feel like the biggest need is I'm not sure in term, you know, I'm not sure in terms of personnel necessarily, but like in terms of playmaking ability, like I, I, it has been, I've been on this beat a long time. We've got a collective like 25, 26 years of experience with the people that are sitting in front of me on this round table and it's been it's been a minute since i can remember a playmaking linebacker in detroit like there's been some solid guys some guys you can you can get by with but man when like was deandre levy yeah deandre levy was the last playmaker that i saw at the second level and that was many many gray hairs ago <laughs> especially for chris burke that's true that's it. all of that is entirely true <laughs> no i mean i think you're right that's um you mentioned it earlier that they they really liked Alex Anzalone this year, and I think he was a good guy for that locker room. Like he came in, he worked hard, he knew the scheme, he helped him adjust, um, but he wasn't good enough to to play that role eighty five ninety percent of the snaps the way that they asked him to when he was healthy. And you know they got some really good stuff out of Jalen Reeves Maven. I thought he was. Uh, maybe one of the bigger surprises for me on the whole roster, just how well he played this year. But, um, you know, again, was that the most you're going to get out of him or was that scratching the surface? And I don't, I don't know that I have that answer. Um, and so I think it is that sort of right up the middle there. What are you going to do at linebacker? What are you going to do at safety? Because even Tracy Walker for as good as he is, I don't know that you'd call him like a playmaking safety necessarily right like he had the pick at the end of the year and he'll break up some passes but he's not a guy that's chasing balls down all over the back end and and picking them off and running them back that's just not who he is he's going to get you 100 tackles and he's going to match up with whoever you need him to match up with but you almost you really need to pair him with someone who's going to go pick the ball off a few times so um that kind of brings me back to what I said about Holmes at the start yeah I'm curious to see what he does this offseason because I you almost get the sense that Aaron Glenn I don't want to say he doesn't need good cornerbacks but like we saw him be okay with whoever they threw out there and so you look at what's coming back maybe you add in a veteran here I don't know that they're going to go out of their way to find a cornerback 
but at safety and at linebacker, if you can't match up with offenses with athleticism at those positions, you're, it doesn't matter what else you do in the NFL right now, because you're going to get carved up over the middle of the field. And uh, so I think that those are probably, if not the priorities this off season, I mean, they got to be, you know, two, three, four on the list. Before uh, letting somebody else jump in here, just to statistically validate what Chris said about Walker as a playmaker, three interceptions in four years, no more than one in a year, one forced fumble in, in four years and averaged six pass breakups in his three years as a starter. Like that is, he is a solid all round player, but playmaker, he is not That is that is a very good assessment. I think that says a lot too. We didn't bring this up, but uh, just, we talked about him in entering the year, but Aubrey Pleasant, I mean, just given what he was given as well. I mean, that guy, I think he, he had a, he did a heck of a job with what he was given as well. And, uh, I'll be I'll be interested to see what what kind of Okuda he gets mentally as well. That was already a, a big thing coming into this year, just his mental side of it. I mean, we, we mentioned Okuda earlier, Kyle, but I'm 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 like I'm curious to see how he comes back as far as that that aspect as well, because we know that's that was something that was you know was bothering him that rookie year, and uh, obviously going down with the Achilles, man, that's 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 crazy. So I'm I'm interested to see what type of Okuda we get back, but I think I just want to bring that back about that. And, and the job that Aubrey Pleasant done as well, because I mean, we heard a lot of a lot about him coming into the year, but I think we saw him really, you know, kind of getting that bag this year with what he was given, the situations he was given as well. So, you know, he 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 did a great job as well with those guys. Do you think Oruwariye is a long term answer for them? They got to make a contract decision on him within the next six to twelve months here too. No, I I don't, Chris. Uh, and I'm curious to hear you guys' thoughts because you know the the interceptions stand out and it's. Uh, deserved he, he made plays this year no doubt I I think a, a good handful of those interceptions were right place right time kind of stuff and of course part of that is just knowing to be in the right place at the right time so good for him I'm not taking anything away from that but I didn't see Oruwari as being some exceptional talent this year and I guess just going back to a point that I made earlier like like he is totally fine and, and better than fine he's a good player for a rebuild he's a veteran he's a pretty consistent guy you know what you're going to get from him Monday through Sunday but like to, to, I mean, to quote Justin Rogers here, like playmaker, he's not like, like he made a lot of plays this year that, that fell into his lap. But like, I don't, I didn't watch him play football this year and think this guy's a starting outside cornerback for, a, you know, a, a contender. I've, I've always thought of him as, as a really good number two or a potentially really good number two. And, um, you know, to your point, like those first four picks were, were gimmies. I mean, they were just, they dropped in his breadbasket that the Baker one stands out the most, right? Like he was out of position on that play and, and would have given up a, a pretty big reception, but Baker overthrows it and uh, pretty badly and free pick. Right. And good job taking advantage of your opportunities. But the way Oruarie kind of progressed as the season went on, like those last five or six games, like his positioning, his playmaking, like were really elevated and, um, I guess I'd have to go back and, and check the numbers, but I feel like the last two years he's allowed fewer than 60% completions on plays where he was targeted. And, and look at, he could clean up some, some tackling issues. He probably commits too many penalties, but it's also a guy the last two years that has been asked to be their number one guy and um, probably played pretty far above his head for that. So if he's your number two guy and you're, you're paying him like a number two guy, and I, I don't know what that is these days, six, seven, eight million dollars per season. I, I think he can absolutely be that, but he's, he's not, I don't think even with the interception told this year, he's, he's not a number one corner in my mind. 
No, I'd agree with that. And I think the one thing that really stands out about Amani is just like, you kind of forget how young he is. And like, I think that's the best way to look at him as a potentially really good number two. And I just think his future in Detroit really hinges on what version or what Okuda shows up next year, because that's really going to show him what they need at corner. Because I think they do have a nice solid piece in Jerry Jacobs. Obviously they've got some picks in this draft and Holmes has flashed those guns picking defensive backs before in the draft. So, you know, you'll see what happens there, but I mean, Awarie, I mean, the growth down the season was great, but yeah, he's not a shut down corner that's gonna you're gonna put on a opposing team's best wideout and say, all right, the other ten guys are good. So it's just that's getting really dangerous because yeah, a lot of those picks, I'd, I'd argue for the first five or so were pretty gimme, kind of in right place, right time. Uh, what what they call him, Lucky Charms? Yeah, Lucky Charms. Yeah, Lucky Charms. He definitely earned that nickname there. I mean, there were obviously some plays he went up and made, but that's not a that's not one of those. I mean, that's a tough call, but that's what we've been doing in recent weeks. That's not one of those guys that you stake your flag and build around. That's that's where I'll leave it. We're getting a little long on time here, and I don't want to take up too much of you guys' time here in the off season. I know we got you know other concerns going on besides uh, this guy in the middle of the night, but um, <laughs> so I, I guess just to wind it down. You know, one question I, I, I did have was biggest need. Like, 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 what do you see as this team's most pressing need, whether it's personnel-wise, coaching-wise? Like, as we proceed to the second year of the rebuild, which is a totally different animal than than what they were doing this year, right? Like, this year was a, a success, I feel like, in a lot of ways with the culture building and the foundation building, but it's a totally different animal going into year two. More is expected of you. It's, in a lot of ways, I think, a, a harder thing than what they did this year. What is your biggest... Uh, biggest need going forward? I think, you know, bigger than any one position. I just talked about this recently. Bigger than just one position. Obviously, when you 313 and one, you need a lot. I mean, let's just be real. They need play. They need a playmaker, whatever that is, on, on any side of the ball, somebody who can make plays. I mean, like, it's been a lot of good talent, a lot of solid talent, but they just need somebody that can really make plays. I mean, a, a guy that can change the game, a guy that's just great at, at one, you know, great at something. It's a lot of good across the board, but it's not anybody that's great at something. So I think this offseason, if it was me, if I was making a decision, I mean, I need a lot. You know, that's, that's just being real. I need somebody who's a game changer, a playmaker on either side of the ball. That's what it is. Like, whatever whatever, whatever side it is, they need that guy that's going to come in and make make that impact. I mean, because it's, it's, like you said, across the board, it's just it's just not there. They don't have any serious, like, just standout guys. So, I think it's it, they have to go out and just really find somebody who can make plays for real. And without saying quarterback, I mean, my gut says the number one true vertical wide receiver, but I mean, I think this team, like you said, Kyle, you let into it. They need a game breaking linebacker. I mean, I watched that Georgia Alabama game and I'm like, shoot, draft every single one of those Georgia linebackers that's eligible. They need some of those side to side guys. I mean, those guys are running like wide receivers. And you just haven't seen that on this defense in a long time. And I think if you put a Kobe Dean or even one of those second or third round ultra fast, just hard nosed pit bull linebackers middle of that defense, you would see this thing really grow just because it's like, I mean, the pieces that they had, I mean, Jalen Reeves may have been good season, did some good things. Derek Barnes did some good things, but they just don't have that lightning fast game breaker on defense. And I think slapping somebody in the middle of that defense would sure go a long way and getting this thing going in the right direction. Any uh, Georgia linebacker, any Ohio State wide receiver would also be a brook for me. Chris, looks like you have something on your mind. What's your, no, I was agreeing with you. <laughs> I think that's the way to go. Um, no, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Eric. I mean, I think they need health. They need, it, it's hard to pin down like one or two things. I mean, to, like I said, I think safety's just glaring for me. Um, they have to figure that out, whatever that means, you know, what they're going to be moving forward there. If they're going to make Tracy Walker, the centerpiece at safety, then, okay, let's pay him like that. Give him as a little 10, 11 million a year, whatever it's going to be. And 
and go from there. But I think that's a position that um, it has been problematic for a couple of seasons now. Uh, I would say the good thing about this draft, if you can get an edge rusher in this league, a pass rusher in this league who can just wreck things by himself and force offenses to worry about him on every single play, it changes everything that you can do defensively. Um, and I like Charles Harris had a nice year. Romeo Okor is a really good player. Those are, that's not the type of guy that you need up there. So maybe you see that in Thibodeau or Hutchinson, or you, you know, further down in the first, first round, you see, see one of those guys who's going to come in and just on every down that he's on the field, the other team has to figure out where he is and make plans for him. Um, and so I think that that's probably the best case scenario for this draft. If the quarterback's not going to be there, you need to find someone who's going to do that up front. And so uh, they've got an opportunity to, to knock one big need, I think, off the list if they want to with that number two pick. You guys are, are all hitting on great points. I, I loved Eric's, um, you know, the, the, the playmaker. It, it just doesn't matter where, right? Like, um, to, to Ben's point, like a wide receiver. This team, it feels like, is a wide receiver away on, on offense to being a, a relatively complete and capable offense with the, the emergence of St. Brown and uh, the presumptive, I guess, uh, attempt to, to bring back Josh Reynolds. Um, obviously, a, a star linebacker would, would be awesome. Um, spoiler alert, like I'm, I've got a, a piece running Monday where I kind of map out the off season and, and I, I throw on my GM hat and I, uh, I, I kind of pair out what I, I think an ideal off season would look like. And, and, and I, it involves hitting all these. And I, I go back to the, um, the safety spot. Like I, I think Williams is, is the answer for a playmaker there. I think, um, I think they have enough cap space. I, I would not give Tracy Walker 10 or 11 million, Chris. I'm, I'm sorry. Like it's, that's, it's a little lofty. Yeah. Don't have to apologize to me. I didn't I, <laughs> apologize I, I, to I, Tracy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you can, I think you can get Walker back for in that $6 million range with, with the playmaking that, that he's offered. I think that's just kind of where that salary sits for me, maybe seven. Um, then you give Williams the big deal. And I, I think that's where you could just focus all your spending this off season and, and, and justify it. Then you go into the draft and, and to answer the, the question in the way I feel, um, the pass rush has been anemic and it's been anemic for years and they, they showed some flashes with blitzing this year, but at the end of the day, their, their pressure rate was still bottom five, about 20%. And it's just not good enough. It starts with the pass rush on defense. Um, if they're going to turn a corner defensively, they need to find that, that star pass rusher. And I, I think you just have to hope that whoever it is, if it's Hutchinson or Thibodeau, that's, that's there at number two, that that guy can be, that piece, that that game wrecking pass rusher, to combine with Aquara and maybe a, a returning Harris to to give you that full rotating attacking defensive line that just is constantly generating pressure because that's going to be what gets this defense out of the basement from a scoring perspective, from a third down perspective to uh, to being competitive week in and week out. Yeah, I don't have too much. Uh, interesting to add to that. So I don't have to belabor the point, but I, I, I mean, I agree with you guys that playmaking ability is the number one thing. I, you know, if, if you don't have a quarterback, then you need one. Those are the only two types of, of teams in this league. And y'all know where I fall on that. So the Lions need a quarterback, but short of that, um, you know, they, 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 they just need, uh, they have a lot of solid players on this team. They really need playmaking ability. You look at guys, guys like 
Charles Harris. We've talked about Tracy Walker, a guy like Orowarie. Uh, Justin, I think you, I loved your report on him, uh, you know, number two corner. Like he would do so much better with a playmaking guy alongside him. Um, you know, it's, it, I'm on Ross St. Brown, like really, really hot finish, really good finish to the year. Can you imagine what the guy would look like with an actual playmaker with them at, at, at wide receiver? What this offense could look like? I, I, I like for as bad as the offense was this year, I feel like they're much closer than people realize from from true competency and maybe even more than that with this with this team with Hawkinson and Swift out of the backfield, both the running backs back next year, like the offensive line and everything that's happening there. You had a vertical threat to that. Um, you know, this offense is a totally different story. Um, yeah, but they don't have that. And I think that's what they need in this draft. Last, um, last question for you all. Like it's, and it, you know, we've talked a lot about the team itself, um, which is what everyone's here for. I, I do get questions all the time with my mailbags and so forth about what it's like covering this team and biographical kind of stuff like that. I, I get a lot of questions about road trips. Uh, I got two more, three more today. Um, so I'm just curious, like, I, I just wanted to finish on that note because I know people are kind of interested in it. Favorite, you know, memory or road trip from covering this team this year uh, it, it's been a long year guys i you know it's it's been a long year um eric it was your first year covering the team so yeah yeah um, that's quite the entrance quite the entrance for, Man, for you guys um, i'm just curious your your you know what what this experience has been like for you yeah it's been it's been uh obviously the start was 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 rough you know just uh Man, I hadn't I hadn't saw a win, you know. I could until we, you know, I can't even to the Minnesota one. I didn't see. Uh, we was me and Ben would joke around a lot, you know, just saying when when am I gonna see my first Lions win? Because even in the preseason they lost them all. But uh, one of my favorite moments from the year, uh, probably for me, just because I, I grew up in Michigan watching the Lions my whole life. Uh, just the opportunity, not even just with this team, just like seeing Calvin Johnson, you know, when he came back and like I have an opportunity to talk to him and you know Barry Sanders, like you know just more so the history of it for me. I mean, I, like I said, I've been watching the Lions uh, my whole life. So I think just actually being there and seeing how things operate on a day-to-day -day basis from the NFL side, I think every day was just a different day for me. And it was a learning experience like every single day because the NBA is such so different. Like everything is way more structured on the NFL side. So like I know what time practice is going to be, you know, it's less games, you know, like it's uh, it was just a total different experience from that standpoint. So I think just me learning the NFL side, and just having the opportunity to just be in, inside and see how things work. That's probably the most memorable experience to me. And just like, I had never met Barry Sanders for this year, never met Calvin. So like just having an opportunity to talk to the legends and, and, and knowing the history of it as well. I think uh, that's, that's probably the best part of my first season. We, we talk about um, this fan base a lot and just the loyalty there. And we see it every year and, you know, it, it it's almost become like, fan base has almost become like a caricature of itself because that's what we're always talking about like oh if you just get a winner like look at how supportive these guys are but um that la game on the road and that was special circumstances obviously people had that circled because they wanted to see stafford again and, um but you know that's a rams team new stadium they're super bowl contender they were what like forty thousand lions fans at that game like when they had the lead in the first half, it was sort of the Rams just played that game against the 49ers. Stafford said he had to go to a silent count. I mean, it was legitimately loud in that building. And some of those games down the stretch, even like, you know, the, the Arizona win, um, the end of that Minnesota game, you know, it, we I guess we almost take for granted just how good the sports fans are in Detroit. And it it's it's been fun to kind of watch, like as miserable as, 
having all four teams going through a rebuild at the same time in the city has been, it's been fun to see the upswing now, but people are going back to Red Wings games. The Tigers were, those games were fun last year. And the Lions, I think the Lions fans are kind of feeling it to kind of go back to where we started. And, and it's just, that was the coolest moment for me that probably that first like 25 minutes of the Rams game when they came out with the onside kick and the fakes and everything and, and all those Lions fans in there were going nuts. Um, you just kind of, I mean, that that's, that's almost, I don't, I don't want to speak for you guys, but for me, that's like what keeps you going through these times covering them is thinking like, well, if they were really good, how much fun would this be to cover this team in this market? If they were, you know, what we're talking about them maybe being someday. So that's the one that'll stand out for me from this season. And what's crazy is almost, I mean, for me anyway, like there were almost as many Stafford Lions jerseys as there were Stafford Rams jerseys. Like there were more Rams jerseys, but man, there, there were Lions. Like there, I saw Honolulu blue everywhere um, that day, even rolling up to the stadium, like Stafford jerseys just everywhere. It was kind of like a celebration for the guy. It felt like a little bit, like even rolling to the stadium, you know? Um, it was, I, mean, I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of Detroiters with the, you know, wearing buffs and Cartiers and stuff. It was like real Detroiters there too. Not like, LA Detroiters. I, that was like the cool part to see it. Like in my hotel room, I saw a guy like with some buffs on it. Like I knew he was from Detroit. You know what I mean? Because like, like real true authentic Detroit fans showed up for Stafford. Like that was crazy. Justin, you and I have killed I don't know a few hundred thousand calories on the on the um, on the beat traveling around. Right? Like we've had some pretty epic dinners. What's the best food you had on the road this year? Oh, that's a good question. I I wish I I always wish I like journaled these things. Right? Like we eat so many good meals. I've thought about it for years of like doing like a year in the life of a beat writer in terms of things I see. And I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. This year was a little bit different with the pandemic and just how difficult it was to get into restaurants. But um, I think overall, like that LA trip was, was my favorite and, and it started well before the game. I mean, I don't know how cursing is taken on this podcast, but loosely screw that airport. Like I, LAX can away. Go to, it's okay. We've LAX got, can go to hell. The worst. Like, I got I got a cluster F already past the M Live sensors, so I think you're gonna be okay. Yeah. Well, then fuck LAX. <laughs> yeah, like just it was like an hour long shuttle to the rental car place, and then 50 people in line, and I just I just walked away. I just walked to my hotel room. I was like, I'm not waiting for this shit. But uh, that that trip in general was was fantastic. Neo was out there with me. We went to Venice Beach for a couple hours. We went to the comedy store. I think it was like a 23-hour day when you factor in the time difference. And then, like, look, at that stadium's awesome. Like, it was awesome. And then, as Chris pointed out, the game was awesome. It was just a really fun game to cover. And, yeah, they ended up losing. But uh, that that road trip, I had never been to L.A. That's kind of one of the great benefits of this job was is kind of seeing – the country in LA was one of the few that I hadn't checked off. So um, that, that trip overall was probably the the highlight of the season. I, I ate some good food out there. I don't know if it was the best I had all season, but it was good. And then you've got poor Ben who had Ben, you made one trip, right? This year is to Cleveland. That's the one, right? Yeah. And uh, I guess I'll get through this story pretty quick. Kyle and I long day at the, the Browns game. We uh, were just at our nice little hotel, decided to go get a meal at the bar downstairs and just, Having a, we split a burger and some pasta, you know, we're a real romantic beat over here, but uh, we're just, it's just like, there's like seven people in this freaking restaurant and it's just, it's probably 1130 in Cleveland Sunday night and all of a sudden you just see two bros just testosteroning at each other and like <laughs> 10 minutes later, there's like six people holding two guys back. 
I watch a guy throw a punch, hit his friend in the face, his nose explodes. I mean, we're sitting next to like, I know this is a uh, audio medium and I'm like telling a story with my hands, but there's a giant glass next to us. And there's just a guy with his hand. It's like the lasting image from this season. It's just a guy with his hand on the glass, blood dripping on his nose. And I'm just sitting there trying to talk to Kyle. Kyle's like trying to ask me questions about how year three on the beat's going. And I'm like, I can't answer these damn questions right now. This guy's bleeding to death on the outside of this bar. And the waitress walks Kyle and I through like a little back secret entrance just so we can safely get to our hotel. And it's just like, all right, one, one trip of the, on the year sure was entertaining as hell. I'm glad the, uh, the romance is still strong on that beat. I think the first time Kyle and I covered something together was the senior bowl. And uh, we definitely split dessert our first meal together. <laughs> and so I, no regrets. That was a good decision. And uh, we'll continue to, split dessert with anybody that is interested on this podcast or otherwise. That's just and I appreciate all of y'all too. I just want to tell y'all that y'all made my transition a lot easier too. You know, me and Ben always talking about basketball stuff and all y'all is real cool, man. And, and I just try to bring good energy to y'all as well, man. Y'all made the transition fun. So I appreciate all y'all too. It's been a, it's been a good year. Maybe just to bring this full circle real quick as we wrap up, like I, I you know, for a three win team and Ben and I both actually nailed the pick. Like I, we both picked three wins. Like, I think we all saw training camp. We knew what to expect. We knew we saw the limitations and they were the team that we saw. And yet they leave us feeling better than we expected, or at least like that, that's certainly how I feel. Um, a little momentum down the stretch, you know, some things to build on. I, I think the first year of the rebuild, there's a lot of good work done. Um, still a lot of work to do <laughs> as we proceed toward, toward year two. Guys, I, I appreciate it. This was a great, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there, a lot of people doing content. It, it's great to get a lot of people together who have seen this team every day for months. Um, when the, some, the insights were, um, it was just, it was a fun, uh, fun conversation to be a part of. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time here uh, late on a off season night to, uh, to partake. Uh, we got Eric Woodyard here just to reset. We got Eric Woodyard here from ESPN, Justin Rogers, Detroit news, Chris Burke, the veteran lines reporter of uh, the athletic, um, of course, Ben Raven and myself. Um, thank you everyone for, uh, for joining us. This has been Ben Raven and Kyle Mikey of M lives, Detroit lions beat. Thank you for listening to the Dungeon of Doom, an MLive Detroit Lions podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, Apple, Spotify, Google. Like I said, wherever you get them and listen to them, make sure to subscribe to the Dungeon of Doom. Thanks again.